Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is one of the greatest cinematographers in the world, Roger Deakins. He got his start as a director of photography in 1977 on the pulpy British drama Cruel Passion. Since then, he's collaborated with John Sayles, David Mamet, Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard, Sam Mendes, Denis Villeneuve, and perhaps most famously, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Roger Deakins helped shoot more than half of the Cohen brothers' films, including Fargo and O Brother, Where Art Thou? and No Country for Old Men. Deakins won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography in 2018 for Blade Runner 2049. He won again for the war drama 1917. He's nominated for what could be his third Oscar this year for his part in Sam Mendes' Empire of Light. So let's just agree on this. This man is accomplished in his field, one of the greatest ever. And if he wanted to try his hand at something else, he'd probably be great at that too. And it turns out he has. A couple of years back, Roger Deakins published his first ever book of photography. Byways is a collection of photos Deakins has taken between 1971 and now. Unlike his meticulously planned on-screen work, These are casual street photographs. And you can tell his gift with the camera isn't limited to motion pictures. Deakins isn't just a great picture maker. He is also an incredible talker. It was so great to get to talk to him. Here's my conversation with Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins, welcome to Bullseye. It's so nice to have you on the show. I really enjoy looking at your book. Thanks. Good to be here. Um, In the introduction to your book, you ask yourself the question of why you are making this book and suggest maybe vanity, but could we say maybe some pride rather than vanity? I know that they're both uh, (laughs) deadly sins or whatever, but... Well, I don't don't know, but you could also say it was something to do. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I mean, I've taken pictures on and off all my life and... uh, you know, it was during COVID lockdown. My wife, James, said, she said, um, well, now's the time we could look for a publisher, see what we can do. Did you have a lot of pictures around or relatively few? No, I'm very selective as I go through it. You know, I quite often, I mean, I don't have very many negatives. And uh, nowadays, digitally, I I wipe anything I don't like, so <laughs> I don't keep very many at all. And I don't take very many pictures, even when I, you know, I go out for a day with the intent of taking pictures. And uh, many, most days I'll come back without a single frame. You know, There's nothing that I've really wanted to take a picture of. So, I mean, I think of you traveling all around the world doing cinematography. I'm like, how could you possibly do an additional thing on a day when you are being the cinematographer of a movie. Like, I can't even imagine making it to eating lunch. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's also a totally different mindset. I mean, even when I was shooting documentaries, when I was starting out in film, I sometimes would carry a stills camera, but I could never use it because I was concentrating on what I was going to shoot for the film. 
And it's, I think it is a different mindset. When I'm wandering around with my stills camera, I'm looking for those sort of odd little quirky things that catch my eye. And that's different than telling a narrative story, you know. We have a former colleague who is a photography podcaster, and he like teaches street photography classes and takes beautiful, beautiful pictures. And one time he, you know, I was like, Ibarra next, come by the office and like, we'll all just take three hours off, take us out front on the street and show us some stuff. And I guess I just hadn't thought about it, but he would walk around until he saw just a pattern that he liked. And then he would say, and then I'll just stand here for an hour or so. Yeah. <laughs> and like that is in itself like a very different process from uh, cinematography where everything is always in motion and you're capturing time over, you know, long periods and you're telling people what to do or the director is telling people what to do. Like Ibarra next would just set up in one spot where he saw something that might happen that he might like and wait mm. for the tiniest moment ever. And a, a lot of the pictures in your book are that kind of picture. And it's such a different kind of thing. Yeah, I don't often do that. I know the still photographer that inspired me most was when I was at um, art college with Rod Roger Main. I don't know if you know his work. He's one of the first actually street photographers. He photographed uh, Northwest London in the 50s. Um, and he said, you know, he would stand on a street corner for hours until people didn't take any notice of him. And they would just go along with their daily lives. I can't do that. And I feel very self-conscious. So I kind of use the excuse of taking photographs as time to explore places. So like when I go somewhere new, like we were in Norway, in Oslo, a few months ago for a documentary film festival. And, and when we weren't doing any part of the event, I would just wander around the city, but I wouldn't stop anywhere. I'd just wander around until something caught my eye. And it was just a way of exploring the city. But also, I thought I did get a couple of photographs I really like. You know, it's that kind of thing. Your, one of your first jobs was as a still photographer. And a lot of these pictures come from that job. Tell me how you ended up taking all of these pictures of the of the seaside in the 70s, I guess, early 70s? No, well, actually, no. The first job I had, I was at art college, and I kind of at art college, I kind of discovered that maybe I should, I discovered still photography, but then I thought about documentary filmmaking, and uh, I applied to National Film School, and it had just opened. It was the first year the National Film School opened in, in England, and I didn't get accepted, but I went to talk to the principal and that and asked why I didn't get accepted and they said well if you come back next year you'll probably get a place and i was lucky enough in the interim year to be offered this job at this art center in north devon i'm from devon i'm sort of from countryside really and so i had this year just wandering around north devon photographing rural life basically and that was the brief to start a kind of record of of rural life i don't think i was very good at it because i I mean, if something didn't catch my eye as a frame or a certain moment, then I wouldn't take a picture. But really, I was meant to be recording everything and anything. But um, 
that was a great year, I think, for me. And yes, in the book, some of the photographs from, from there. But then the seaside pictures, I mean, some of them I took just a couple of years ago. Let me ask you about those oldest ones, the ones of the countryside. I mean, there are like, there's a really intense picture of what looks like a farmer burying some dead calves or dead um, yeah. lambs. Lambs, yeah. In general, they truly look like photographs from, to me, from another world. Mm. Like they could be pictures of something happening in All Creatures Great and Small in 1937, or they yeah. could have been photographs of something happening in 1895 or something. Yeah, but I mean, we're sitting in Los Angeles. Yeah, well, uh. that, what I'm wondering <laughs> is when you took these pictures, you know, 50 years ago, yeah. and, you know, being from that part of England, to what extent did you see the people that you were photographing as being apart from you? And like, to what extent did you see them being native to you? You know what I mean? Oh, I'm very much part of me. And my my grandfather had a, um, a small sort of building contractors company that my dad took over, but he also had kind of a bit of a small farm. So yeah, I'm, I seem very connected to that whole area. So but I could take you to places now in North Devon, particularly on Dartmoor, and you would see more or less the same thing. You know, the the people lambing in the spring and trying to, you know, when the, the ewe has too many lambs and can't look after them, they take one of the lambs and then try and put it with another ewe that hasn't had a successful birth and that, that sort of thing. And they're burying these lambs or they're carrying them so that the mother will follow them up the field. And so all the pictures, are, I could basically show you the same thing happening today, you know. We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Roger Deakins. He's an Academy Award-winning cinematographer who's worked with the Coen brothers, Martin Scorsese, Sam Mendes, and many, many more. He's also a still photographer. He recently released a collection of his photographs. It's called Byways. Let's get into the rest of our conversation. A lot of your early cinematography work was in documentaries. Did you get those jobs out of the photography or... Um, you're shaking your head now. No, I didn't. No, it was nothing to do with that, really. I The photography got me in the National Film School. There's no question about that. That, and actually I wrote a couple of scripts, but I don't know what they were like, but I'm sure the photography got me in. Actually, somebody said they liked the script, but I should go back to it. But um, at the film school, I went back to North Devon. Some of the people that are in the photographs, I went and saw them, and... Um, I made a film about a stag hunt, which is now doesn't happen, but it was a stag hunt in North Devon and the people involved in it and how much it was part of rural life. So I made that film at film school. And then from that film, a lot of other students asked me to shoot their fiction films. So I shot a lot of films while I was at film school, maybe 15 different kind of movies. And that's what got me work later when I left. I did a couple of documentaries early on i did one with some photographs from it i was actually in the book um about the around the world yacht race i, I helped 
crew on a yacht for nine months in this race around the world but, um, and making a film at the same time. And that, I think, it was interesting because actually, um, you might know Chris Menges, but he was gonna, he was offered the film, but he didn't want to do it for this TV company and he was starting to do drama. So um, I had met him and I think he recommended me to the, the TV producer who was producing this. I watched some of that movie. It's on, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can get it by paying for it. I happen to have watched it on a uh, popular video watching website. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, it is really intense because I think, well, first of all, I mean, as with the still photographs of that time in your life that are in this book, and there are a few, you know, there's just the ocean is very intense and threatening. But um, <laughs> certainly felt that way when I was on that boat, yeah. <laughs> but besides that, it's like the juxtaposition of this like infinite water of the ocean and just the closeness of being on a boat with other people um, mm. and the emotional intensity of being on a yeah. boat with other people. That was really the brief. That's what we were, we were trying to get. I say we. I was there with a sound recordist, Noel Smart who was a better sailor than I was. I had never sailed on a yacht, really, apart from a small dinghy in Torquay one time. Um, <clears throat> so suddenly being sailing around the world on this 55-foot catch was kind of a new experience. But, um, yeah, what we were trying to get was the feeling of this, how do people cope? How do they relate in a confined space under sort of extreme, extreme conditions? But, of course, we were part of the subject as well as being, <laughs> trying to make the film and we were also we were doing our watches we were doing our bit we were crewing the yacht like any, anybody else so it was kind of it was kind of a hard film to make it was hard to get up when you weren't on watch when you were sleeping in your bunk it was hard to get up and get the camera and go out on deck and start shooting you know it was it, that was a tough one but I, th that was the idea to get some sense of what it's like to be there and the characters and how they related to each other on that boat. When you're shooting film, especially, particularly when you don't have a lot of control, like in a documentary, how do you know that you're doing a good job? Like, how do you know that you're getting what you want? <laughs> How do you know? I mean, it's just sort of instinctive, I guess, you know, um, experience and instinct. I mean, maybe I never did. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a personal taste, isn't it? You know, I mean, where you put the camera, I'd put it somewhere over here and you put it somewhere over there. I mean, it's just a, it's personal choice, really. How do you know you're getting something good? I used to feel this on documentaries. I did... Um, one of the early films I shot was in um, Zimbabwe when it was still Rhodesia, and it was like uh, we went in there, sort of undercover. During this is during the, during the um, the war, really, when Ian Smith was the you know white guy in in power. Um, we went in as though we were shooting a tourist film, which was quite ridiculous at that point in the the, the, the war, and uh, we got thrown out as it happened, but. Um, I remember shooting stuff with, I didn't speak Swahili, but I remember shooting stuff and you just get an instinct for when something's interesting and when it's actually better to be on somebody's reaction 
rather than the person talking. The sense you get a feeling of what's happening in the environment around you and how those people are really feeling. And you just get a sense through looking at them visually. And um, sometimes I mean, remember just shooting some people talking and just think, God, that was really good. But I have no idea what they said. And then you have it translated and you think, yeah, that was, that was funny. That's strange how that worked, you know. So much of the work of a cinematographer in a scripted feature film is about like preparation and establishing control over what's going to happen. Like the director wants this, you have these sub ideas that you're executing. You want this many lumens or candle powers from this light and, you know, on down your like show up early to plan it out or you make a diagram or something. By the time you have done all of that, how do you retain the feeling of I'm going to capture an accident? Yeah, well, that's a trick, really, isn't it? You've got to be open to throwing it all away. Yeah, no, that is the trick. But I love the idea of studying a scene or studying the overall concept of the film and having a very... You know, because when you like when you do storyboards, you think about a scene and talk about it over and over again. Do you really analyze what you need to make that scene have its most effect on an audience? But when you've got the essence of it, and then you can throw that away if you see something that's going to give you that, but in a different way. If you get what I mean, I think that it is a trap when you do storyboards and you stick religiously to those storyboards. I did do one film where the director said, I, didn't want to, I don't want to change anything from the storyboard. So all the actors had to stand in exactly the place they were drawn in a drawing weeks beforehand. We'd done all these storyboards. I thought they were quite good, but I wouldn't have stuck to that because some of the actors would come and say, yeah, but I mean, if I was over here and, and you go, yeah, that's great. And maybe I'd be setting up a shot and the director wasn't there and the director would come and said, no, 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 it's got to be, that's not the storyboard, this is what we're going to do. And, and and I find that really constricting. I was listening to your podcast with Robert Eggers, the director, and his cinematographer, and their movies are so aesthetically intense, visually intense. Mm. And your wife, James, I think, mm sort of suggested to them they must storyboard a lot. And Robert Eggers immediately, like, it was, he's a very, seems like a very pleasant man. He was when he was in mm-hmm. here. But uh, he, like, recoiled to mm. clarify that, like, actually his great inspiration is um, is Werner Herzog, who says, like, if, <laughs> if you storyboard a film, the best you can produce is kitsch or something like that. But uh, then he admitted that, like, at a certain point of complexity and, like, the number of animals yeah, in a movie, yeah. he does actually storyboard everything. Yeah. But I thought of your job, which there's so many points on that spectrum that you're coming in. There are movies where you're involved in the storyboarding. There are movies that are storyboarded out where your job is to execute that storyboard. There are movies where where there is relatively little storyboarding, there's a shot list and you're there and you're, you and the director are figuring out what the shot is when you get there. Yeah, I've I'll just clarify, I've never shot a film where I've been given storyboards and told that's what we're going to shoot. I wouldn't have taken the job. 
you know, Joel and Ethan sometimes would storyboard a film and I wouldn't be there in the early process. But That's then we'd all Joel sit and down. Ethan Cohen. Cohen, yeah. yeah. But then we'd sit down and go through it. And I'm Barton Fink, when the first time I worked with them, we sat together in a hotel room for five weeks, I think, while we were scouting for locations, but we would sit there and go through the storyboards and do it together. So, you know, I've always been involved in that process. I may have spent months with Denny Villeneuve before we did Blade Runner. I mean, literally spent months with him talking through the script and ideas and doing storyboards. But then the other side of it is also I love because when I first worked with Sam Mendes on a film called Jarhead, which I think is one of the, my favorite films I've ever worked on, I had heard from Conrad Hall, who had worked with Sam a couple of times previously, um, that Sam liked to storyboard everything and really do a lot of prep. And so I'm meeting with Sam. We're out in the desert looking at locations. And he said, I don't want to storyboard that. I, you know, we'll choose a location, but I think we should shoot it all handheld and just shoot rehearsals and just figure it out as we go along with the actors. And I went, okay, that's great. You know, that's fine. So I'm shooting it handheld like I was doing a documentary, you know, and I loved it. I want to ask you about some of these uh, filmmakers that you've worked with. And I'm glad you brought up the Coen Brothers because you shot a lot of Coen Brothers movies. Coen Brothers movies, the visual aesthetics are very like distinctive, very mannered often. Um, and I don't mean that negatively, but like they really aren't afraid to go for it in terms of the camera, right? Not just that the picture on the screen is beautiful, but they will really, they'll have bold choices. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the point where like, you know, before they made so many good movies that nobody could ever complain, the the complaint about them, right, was that they were like self-parodic or they were parodying good movies by being too cute or something, with which I disagree. Yeah. But what's it like to work on a movie with guys who are that kind of inventive visually? Well, I've been very lucky work, to work with them for so long. I mean, I had a really great time. I mean, the first one I was talking about earlier, Barton Fink. I mean, such a style. I mean, the camera in that film is a character. It's like a character itself observing this world. But you say they have a particular style, I mean, I guess they do, but then if you look at Fargo, when we started talking about Fargo and the look of Fargo, they said, well, it wants to be observational. We're telling a true story. You know, the header at the front says this is a true story. I mean, obviously it's not. But they wanted to shoot it like on a 40 mil. They wanted it to be more observational. They didn't want to do tracking shots. And, you know, they wanted, they mentioned doing it more like a Ken Loach movie. Let me be the first to say Fargo's a great movie. Mm. But like it has a very flat quality that matches the milieu of the northern Midwest. And like it has a lot of natural beauty, but all of that natural beauty is presented very flatly. Mm. You know, it's like blood in the snow, you can almost imagine spreading out on the on the screen at 90 degrees from the ground. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like and that is a really significant choice in the context of that film that is, you know, about these crazy things happening and crazy ways of talking and things that are, you know, funny happening in a 
plain world. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? A yeah. real simple, slow world. Yes. Exactly. And then you contrast that with oh, Lebowski or, or Hudsucker Proxy, you know, which I think is a great movie, but you know, people don't. But um, I think it's a hoot and half. Yeah, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, th- as you were saying, I mean, there were f- there are filmmakers that really go for it, you know, and even their films that are deemed failures are far more interesting than 80% of what's out there. But you contrast uh, a-, a Fargo with one of their more stylized movies so it's not they don't have a particular one kind of way of shooting you know and that's what's so interesting you know that the style of the cinematography and the the feel of the film fits the story i remember scouting on fargo for instance with with them once and we would go to um i go try to find a hotel corridor and a reception desk (laughs) <laughs> we were standing in this corridor and um production designer was saying well how about the location manager saying well how about this and joel and ethan would walk up across the corridor it's far too interesting and you look in the corridor and it was like a sofa a chair and a picture on the wall <laughs> and they would say well maybe if we got rid of the picture and the sofa and just left the chair. Maybe it would work. And you and I, they were trying to just strip it all down to its barest elements. And and I always remember that. That was that was I thought quite brilliant and what it how it expressed what they were trying to achieve with Fargo. We've got more with Roger Deakins after a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about whether Deakins' process for shooting movies has changed over time, especially given how differently we watch films today. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hello, dreamers. This is Evelyn Denton, CEO of the only world-class, fully immersive theme resort, Steeplechase. You know, I've been seeing more and more reports on the blogs that our beloved park simply isn't safe anymore. Murdered them? I'm gonna wreck it. They say they got mugged by brigands in the fantasy kingdom of Ephemera or hijacked by space pirates in Infinitum. I mean, I could have a knife. My papa said that I needed to do a crime. Friends, I'm here to reassure you that it's all part of the show. These criminals were really just overzealous staff trying to make things a little more magical for our guests. We're just as safe as we've always been. This isn't a county fair, dreamers. This is Steeplechase. The Adventure Zone. Every Thursday at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Roger Deakins, the Academy Award-winning cinematographer. I want to ask you about this James Bond movie on which you were DP with Sam Mendes. How do you shoot differently for something that is going to be moving a lot? Because there's, you know, James Bond movies are full of vehicles, fighting, guns and things that go fast, running. When you have to shoot things that are in motion rather than relatively static. How does it change what you have to do? Well, I got to say that again, part of the first conversation I had with Sam was he said, um, we're not going to do it any different. And we've shot, you know, Jarhead and Revolutionary Road by then. He said, we'll try and do most of it single camera. You know, because I like working single camera. I like, uh, I like that sort of precision of this is the shot for this moment in the film. Uh, obviously, there was scenes in 
Skyfall where we have multiple cameras. There's a train crash, underground train crashes in a sort of Victorian underground area. Um, we had 11 cameras on, you know, and every shot is used. And we had a second unit that was working a lot of the time. But almost everything we did with the main characters was done first unit. And um, I say a lot of it was single camera. Hmm. There are uh, scenes in that movie that are really incredible that are, there's a f fight against a, like a shot against a screen with lights moving around. Yeah, jellyfish. Yeah. And it made me think that a lot of the time uh, in movies that you shot, there is a lot of that frame is in focus. We can see a lot of it. And I wondered if that's something that you in particular think you might like, to be able to see all the stuff that's in the frame rather than, you know, have a have a subject that's focused and other things that aren't. Yeah, I do tend to like see surrounds. I like seeing a character within an environment, yeah. I don't like hugely wide lenses very much. Um, I find that a bit self-conscious, you know, it's done quite a lot now wandering around on a big wide lens. It doesn't really do much for me. What difference does that make when you make that choice or don't in terms of I feel, how it looks? I feel that it makes it feel unreal to me that that's not the way I see the world. When I'm walking around, I don't feel I'm looking through a fisheye lens or an extreme wide angle lens. So I'm a, maybe I'm a bit conventional like that. I like, I like to put the audience in what I feel is a kind of real space, you know. One of the things that's really cool to me about cinematography is it is a visual art like absolutely a visual art like painting or whatever it's narrative as well obviously but it's this beautiful artist's thing and it is also like architecting and doing math <laughs> like you just got so excited talking about building stuff and i'm sure that every morning when you go to the set you're like waving those light meters around and writing things on graph paper and stuff. Do you think you would get the same satisfaction out of your work if there wasn't this piece of it, this big piece of it that is a kind of like problem solving? No, I mean, that's what I, I really love about it. It's, you know, you, you're hopefully being creative and expressing something of yourself emotionally, whatever. But it also is a technical challenge, there's no doubt about that. But you know, one, one of the things I get most of it from it is actually the collaboration with other people. I mean, it, it can be, I don't know who it said, it's the closest thing to socialism when you're doing a film and everybody's working together for a common end, you know. Do you think that your passion for collaboration is why you have worked primarily as a collaborator, as one of the workers in the socialism rather than the potential despot or benevolent leader? <laughs> like, do you think I, that's I why you've mostly been a cinematographer and not a director? I don't I don't think I've got the confidence to do that. Um, um, I feel at home on a set behind a camera, but uh, not. I don't feel at home in studios and talking to yeah do you think about the ways that people are going to experience movies when you think about how to shoot them yeah but i'm still i mean whatever regardless i mean the films i've done i haven't shot that many movies lately 
I'm still working the same way I've always worked, really. You try and create the best image, what do you think is the best image possible? And um, yeah, I'm not compromising for somebody watching on their iPhone, which I know people do, but I'm not. I'm composing for a, a reasonable size screen, even if it's not a you know 45 foot screen anymore. Um, I think I, you know, we were talking about this earlier outside. I mean, I, even if people are watching it on a 60 inch TV, they're still sitting the same relationship to that screen as they would be in the middle of a cinema in an audience. I was about to say, like, I love to go to a movie theater because I like cherry Coke. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's hard to find fountain cherry Coke otherwise, but I like going to the movie theater because. I have ADHD and it makes it easier for me to be immersed in the film and not do something else. Mm. And I love the experience of seeing a film, so mm. that helps. Mm. But, you know, as much as there is talk about the death of the movie theater and people watching movies at home, the flip side of that is the experience of watching a movie at home is pretty great now, which it was not like when I was watching all the you know movies that i learned about movies from it was watching them on a you know i had a color television but like you know one that's not even the size of a manhole cover or yeah. something you know yeah. like i had like an 18 inch tv and a vcr yeah i mean i do love being you know in the dark with a group of people and all that on a big screen yeah there's nothing quite the same but on the other hand you know the other day i just fancied watching stalker you know uh, Tarkovsky's Dorka. I mean, I love his movies. Now, where could I have seen that? But I sat there watching it on a 60-inch TV and it was a wonderful experience. So I'm glad of that. And um, if it's going that way, I mean, you know, everybody's of their own time, aren't they? You know, I was brought up watching more movies than people do now on in the cinema because there were more cinemas in Turkey where where I grew up there used to be five or six cinemas I could walk to okay it was quite a long walk but five or six within walking distance of an evening now there's kind of one you know and that was happening way pre-covid it's not covid that's done it it's just the people's ways of being entertained and taking in information and stimulation has changed and you know, it's just to say we're creatures of our time. I, I loved going to the movies and and watching all those in England, watching all those European films, and I'd watch them in a little film society in Torquay, and it would be on 16 mil because that's all the copies they'd get, and it would be on a portable screen they just put up in this. It was a gas showroom, for God's sake, at night, and it was right on the street, but it was dark, so it didn't matter, and they'd put it up, and you'd watch all these wonderful movies like Alphaville and... Um, Peter Watkins' War Game and, and last year in Marion Bad, all these kind of weird movies that I never, you know, they just blew me away. And so that's my memory of movie experience. And it's different for people now. Of course it is. You don't feel like, man, I dedicated my 50 years of doing this and all my expertise and gifts and art into this beautiful film that I'm really proud of. And somebody's going to watch it with motion smoothing turned on? Uh, you know, if they watch it, that's good enough, really. You know, I, I, 
you live your life and enjoy the moments. And I go back again to the idea of collaboration and feeling that you achieve something together with other people. And that's the best of it, really. Yeah, I mean, what people think of the movies, I mean, they're not my movies. I shot them, yeah, but yeah, that's fine. There's a picture in your book that is also, I noticed, the cover art of your podcast. It's this picture of a dog. Oh, yeah. Can you tell me about this picture of a dog? Well, somebody came up to us the other day, well, the other day, a few weeks ago, we were in Poland because we had a photo exhibition in Poland. And somebody said, well, something to the effect, well, how many dogs did suffered to get that shot? As though somebody was up on the promenade throwing dogs off so we could get this shot of this dog. <laughs> and this, and the, the dog in this picture is... You are seeing it from the sort of perspective of someone on a beach yeah. and looking up at the berm or whatever it is. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. A wall. And there's a dog jumping. So our our field of vision is this wall on the left, the sand and beach on the right, the sky up to the upper right, and then just a dog profiled in the middle uh, in the air looking at the camera. Yeah, well, that, the trick was he's looking at the camera. And what it was, I mean, James and I were just going for a walk on the beach there at Tima, and somebody threw a stick over and a dog went after it. And I got a quick shot, but it's just a dog in profile with a stick going down. So we just stopped there to see what would happen. And sure enough, another stick came, or oh, the same stick, the dog took the stick back up. The guy threw the other stick and this dog came down, stick went out of frame and the dog looked at the camera. And I just thought, wow, that's really, I hope that comes out. So it's just, you know, it's those little serendipity moments where you just get something, you think, oh, I really like that. But if the dog hadn't looked at the camera, I don't think it would have been anything. I sure liked seeing the twinkle in your eyes in the corner of your mouth as you thought about that little serendipity of the dog looking yeah, at the camera. Yeah, it's those moments, you know. There's another shot in the book where I was painting on painting seafront and they changed it around and they put this kiddie's playground in and they had a carved wooden lion or some beast like that, animal like that and it was the lion was there it was a kind of cold sort of autumn day but a lion was sitting there and then there was this white girl looking up at it and I only managed to get a shot before the white girl flew off but I to me it was so funny and so interesting that that they put in this new playground. The girl was wondering, what is this thing? And there's two creatures, one animated and the other not, you know, looking at each other. I just thought that was, I love that photograph. Well, Roger Deakins, I, I sure am grateful to you for your amazing work and the, the great book. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's great. Roger Deakins. His beautiful collection of photography is called Byways. You can buy it on his website or order it from your local bookstore. And we didn't get much into it today, but Roger is also a podcaster muscling in on my turf. Roger and his wife, James, co-host the podcast Team Deacons. Uh, it is a really fascinating show. They get very inside baseball with incredibly gifted people from the world of film. Famous ones. Too. It is really exciting to hear gifted artists speak their own language about their art. Uh, yeah, it's a really cool show. I listened to a bunch of them as I was preparing for this. Go check it out wherever you get podcasts. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fund in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Look, here in Lincoln Heights, I got to jump in the van. It's almost time for the farmer's market. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers, Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Our thanks to them and to Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing it with us. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Follow us in any of those places. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.